0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. The delicate balance of mentoring someone is not creating them in your own image, but giving them an opportunity to create themselves. Sadly, this is not a Wirtz original, but a thought-provoking insight from Steven Spielberg. This respect for individuality is something most of us seek in our careers. We can accept and even embrace that compared with our colleagues we may learn differently, think differently, and act differently. Today's ophthalmology trainees are no different, and the successful mentors are catching on.
1: I don't really care how somebody learns about multifocal corditis. I just want them to learn about it. And so uh, whether you come in and do a lecture and listen to our faculty or whether you sleep in and then learn it at night, the only thing that really matters is Do you know how to take care of patients with that problem?
0: That's Dr. Thomas Oding of the University of Iowa. In this episode, I sit down with Tom to talk about his views on mentorship and why he feels it's important to give trainees room to think differently. We'll also hear from Dr. Joshua Frankel, a senior resident at Tulane, about what it's like to be in training today. First up is Tom.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.
0: This is Dr. Gary Wirtz with another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I have finally tracked down Tom Oding. Uh, Tom is someone who I have uh, been a fan of peripherally um, for quite a long time. Uh, All the stuff he does with teaching residents and making our profession better, um, it really is inspiring. And so, um, we are really excited to be able to talk to Tom Oding today on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. So with that being said, Tom, thank you for carving out some time
1: to come and talk to us today. Thank you, Gary. I, Gary, I just want to tell you right up front, we really appreciate the times that you've uh, grabbed our residents at various meetings and sat down and, um, you know, had a drink with them and and did informal mentoring. And, and it really means a lot to uh, those residents and and to our profession to have folks like you that take the opportunity to to informally mentor people. And, and certainly this podcast is a way to, to spread that sort of mentoring across the world. So I, I really appreciate all you're doing for us.
0: Oh, well, you know, when you're, when you're uh, raising such good and developing such good residents, it's really selfish for me to be around such high-quality people because I actually get more out of it probably than I give. But thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Let's dive right into a topic that I think um, uniquely is suited for um, your experience and expertise, and you even brought it up uh, initially, and that is what do you think makes a good mentor? I mean, mentorship is so important. There are so many people who have, um, I've been so lucky to run into the right people who have invested in me, and so I know the value of that and sort of try to pay that forward now, but what do you think? Why do you think mentorship is important, first of all, and what do you think makes a good mentor, um, either in residency or out?
1: Well, I, I think mentoring is really important. I think that's why we're all here uh, at the Academy this year and, and why we go to meetings is because we, we sort of crave uh, the idea of, of live interaction with people. I, I think what makes a good mentor is, first off, you have to give a darn. I mean, you have to care about that person. Sometimes it's helpful if they go to the same uh, program as you. Sometimes it's helpful um, if they have some other uh, interesting connection with you. Maybe uh, maybe they both went to the same uh, undergrad, like they're both Hawkeyes or something. But the, the the idea is that you want to have you want to give a darn about that person. And then secondly, as a mentor, you have to have some connections. You have to have some some leads uh, or some people uh, or resources that that you can share. Uh, with your mentee um, that that are valuable, and I think those two things are an important combination. If if you're a developing uh, faculty member or a developing um, surgeon, I think it's important to take opportunities to get to know people so that you do have resources available. So for, to me, this is a great opportunity for me to meet you, and hopefully, I can I can say that I, that I that I know you. Maybe I can use you later as a resource for one of our residents that wants to do. Um, you know, complex cataract surgery or uh, refractive cataract surgery, that kind of stuff. So I think I think it's important for us to have a, a, a stable of people that you can go to. One of the things that's interesting about mentoring is it's important to develop these relationships when the seas are calm, right. and not just when things are crazy. And uh, that's one of the things that sometimes you forget about is, is uh, it's important to establish relationships when things are going well. So sometimes you may have a complicated case or you may have a a problem with a coworker or something, but it's very hard to just all of a sudden call somebody that could be of value to you if you haven't already developed a relationship with them. So I do think it's um, it's something we all have to work on. Um, I, I have mentors myself, even though I've been in the business 25 years and even though i am getting got a lot of gray hair, there's a lot of people that I really look up to um, and, and I use to give me help and advice. And, um, and so I think it's important for us to develop mentors, and also for us to have mentees that, that we take care of.
0: You know, I think um, in residency programs, there are definite cultures that um, form. And it's usually um, based on the attendings and the residents that are there. But uh, generally, the, the program director or the chairman sort of set a culture. We definitely had a culture of mentorship at the University of Kentucky, not you know, only with um, our faculty members. But it was really like a family of residents where the upper-level residents really looked out for the the younger residents and really showed us the way and showed us the path forward. Walk us through in your program um, maybe what that looks like or a little bit of the culture of mentorship uh, that's there at Iowa.
1: Well, I I think some programs will have a formal system for mentoring where you come in as a first-year resident, you're assigned to somebody. Our program tends to not have formal mentors, but instead uh, people develop those with time. And the important thing is to try to um, try to get people connected with people in various ways so that those informal mentoring relationships can start. Oftentimes it's related to uh, fellowship interests or other interests that, that crop up that make it mutually beneficial. Research interests, for example, is a great one. Um, within our program, though, I think some of the most important mentoring relationships are more senior residents to more junior residents, and 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 those relationships form in a lot of ways with um, social activities that are that are often um, done at times of less stress, so that you can develop strong relationships. When when the going gets tough, you really don't want to start developing relationships then. So, for example, if somebody has an illness and you have to cover a call. If you've developed tight relationships within the organization, then those things are much more easily managed. So we really try to focus a lot on, on as best we can of trying to develop those relationships, having the class tight within itself and also having good relationships with more senior to more junior residents. And one way we do that is by having a junior resident and a senior resident that rotate through together in various rotations and so they're, they're called um, you know, buddies or, or uh, big big buddies, big brothers, big sisters, that kind of thing. And so that's been a useful um, tool. For faculty, it just kind of grows out of more sort of related to interests as opposed to related to, uh, uh, to more, um, uh, you know, structured things. I, I, do, I do think we're lucky we have um, our chairman now, Keith Carter, is the president of the Academy of Ophthalmology this year. He just took over with this meeting and and clearly he has developed this unbelievable network of um relationships uh and that's a model to us uh it's a model to um to how you can you can have your life how you can have your career um you can't walk with keith carter more than four steps in this meeting without having five people come up and hug him and say hi to him and so you and that just doesn't happen i mean it's just not instantaneous it's because he's worked on it right makes sense makes sense you know,
0: Iowa is just one of those programs that year in, year out um, attracts the best people, the best and brightest. But I think beyond that, it has a track record of producing incredible clinicians and scientists. Uh, we do have sort of a wide range of people who listen to this. I know there's some med students who listen, there's residents who listen, there's people in every stage of their career. What's the secret of attracting good residents and, and building good clinicians? If I mean, that's a very nebulous question, but are there characteristics that you see, or maybe traits that you try to develop in people that once they're done, they're not just going to be a nine to five ophthalmologist; they're going to go above and beyond?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's hard. We're right in the middle of our of our search for our next class, and um, you know, there, everybody gets four or five hundred applications, and everybody only has you know five or six residents they take, and so there's a there's a, a job of sort of sorting through, and not every program is for every person, so um, it's not like um, we, we, we certainly encounter people that we don't think would fit and they don't think would fit. So it's, it's often mutually exclusive. What we try to do is we, we look for integrity and passion. We look for desire to take care of patients. Um, and a lot of the other things come um, later or come around that. But the important thing is that our primary mission, even though we're a teaching institution, is to take care of patients. So we're looking for people that have, uh, have, have shown aptitude in that area, maybe have some spice, like they've really um, had passion in some area or uh, have done service work in their community or church uh, that, that gives us a sense that they they've made the places they've been better and if we bring in people that make our place better then, uh, then, then uh, Iowa will continue to get better and better so we're looking for for that sort of stuff there's so many people that have enough brain power i hate to say this but have enough brain power to be in ophthalmology it's the people that are successful in ophthalmology have other intangible skills but it's it's not you know, it's not like physics or something like that, where where you, you know you, you really have to be, um, uh, you know, have super uh, brain power. It's more about um, people skills, taking care of patients, working in a team, um, having passion, having energy. You know, a great example of this is um, is our mutual friend John Kitchens.
0: Oh, huh, uh, I love John,
1: who's uh, who's just an absolute super energy, passionate guy that changed our world of make believe when he came there as a resident, and uh, he went on to. Great success at Bascom as chief resident, and uh, now he uh, is, a, is is quite a famous retina specialist. And he, he just was a great example. From the from the minute we interviewed him, we knew he had a lot of passion and integrity, uh, and we knew um, that he was going to be a team player, and we knew he was going to take care of patients. And so that that's just a great example of of the kind of person we're looking for. And now, yeah, now,
0: the- I got to I got to interrupt. I'm sorry, I've heard. That John played some practical jokes as a resident—is that true or false? Can, is there anything you can share, or is it all uh, it's, uh, past the uh, the uh, the limit of what you can what you can share? Well,
1: he he, he certainly enjoyed making fun of us, and, and he would do do videos where he would do things like um, make fun of Dr. Hayray, our our very famous uh, researcher who did a lot of work on um, on monkeys and has a uh, and had a for a while a stable of uh, of monkeys there in Iowa, and he would dress up like a monkey and and go around and. Uh, uh, with with one patch on and, and uh, really really kept us kept us thinking about what we were doing, but mainly it, things like that bring you together. Right. So when he teases Dr. Hayray, who's almost unteasable, he's one of the most famous ophthalmologists in the world. He, he keeps us all down to earth and grounded, and we remember uh, that you know we're, we're people and we're, we're we're part of a family, and we need to uh, we need to stick together.
0: Well, I'm going to ask at some point offline that we uh, dig up those videos because I think that would be uh, fantastic to to see those at some point. Um, earlier, before we uh, started the program, you're talking about a philosophy um, about developing internal motivation among your residents rather than just sort of this external uh, carrot and stick approach and sort of this idea of residents being, in your words, the captain of their ship. Can you, can you just expound on that a little bit and explain that philosophy and why that seems to be so, such an important factor in the way you try to motivate residents as they, as they go through?
1: I, I think this is one of the hard things about um medicine medical education in general is that we we go through these very scripted courses where we go to um undergrad, then med school, all all sort of going through the, the, the motions to get our residency. When we get in the residency we have all these very, very scripted, very um externally motivated course of study that we do. And then a lot of times by the end of that many, many years, you think about it, you know, we're talking about uh twelve years um of uh, of, of this sort of work, a lot of people lose their ability to motivate themselves. They kind of forget uh, that they should be thinking about um, wh- what what are my gaps in my education? How can I make myself better? As opposed to, there, there's a tendency to think a little bit with our training system of, is anybody detected my gaps? And if they have detected my gaps, you know, I better be careful. You know, so right, but keeping so, up
0: the the appearances.
1: Yeah, and so it's I, I think I think what's important is for us to. Be the captain of our educational ship, and so if there's something that you know you don't know how to do, then then figure out a way to, to, to get better at it, as opposed to, um, you know, worrying about what your professors think and and so forth. And I've I've come to this conclusion more and more as as my my own children have been in, in the high tech industry and, and finance industry, and I see how much um, how much freedom they have, uh, within the the, the the sort of goals of what their job is to figure out how to do it. They've been a very innovative and they're very um, open. To various ways of learning. So, I mean, for example, I don't really care how somebody learns about multifocal chorditis. I just want them to learn about it. And so, uh, you know, whether you, whether you um, come in and do a lecture and listen to our faculty or whether you sleep in and then learn it at night, the only thing that really matters is, do you know how to take care of patients with that problem? And so there's a million examples of things like that. So we've been trying to do more and more things along those lines to um, encourage people to to be the be their own boss of their education one selfish reason that that's useful is if we give people time to be the captain of their own ship uh, and then and then you know six months later they say to me uh i don't know about um oct what are you doing about it and i'm saying i'm not doing anything about it you're you're the captain of your ship you had you had some time to do it now you learn about it that's that's your job And i think the more we can sort of reinforce that with people and say oh that's right i'm the captain of my ship uh, i'm I, I need to i need to figure out how to how to move forward I'm not saying you totally remove all structure training. I, I would never say that. I'm just saying just just introduce a little bit of 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 this idea of being the captain. I think if we do more of that, we're going to get more people like you, Gary, more people that that are innovative and and thinking about um, uh, about how to do things differently and in, in, in exciting new ways, and less people that that are just going through the motions totally beat down by the system when they get out.
0: Yeah, I think that if that culture is fostered and and you have those educational habits of being being curious, self directing your learning, you're you know we want to build lifelong learners. We don't want to get people who are just there to pass their boards and really mail it in for the next you know thirty or forty years. So um, I think that that approach, um, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned it because it's, it's not something intrinsically obvious to me. I think everything you're saying I agree with. I've just never put it into a concise thesis like that, but I do think that that is something we all need to uh, be reminded of, that this is a ever-growing, ever-changing specialty, and uh, you know they told me in med school, 50% of what we teach you is wrong. Uh, your job is to figure out which 50% that is. <laughs> exactly. Know? And so uh, as, we, as we go about uh, learning uh, throughout our career, it's important that we do take that responsibility so seriously, because it ultimately impacts how we're able to care, care for patients. So, well, Tom, thank you so much. I don't want to take too much of your time at this point. Um, I would love to have you back on, maybe with some of your residents, if that's ever an opportunity, uh, to gather some and have maybe even more of a roundtable um, about what it's like to be a resident nowadays and what it's like to uh, learn um, as, as the captain of the ship. I think that could be a really uh, important topic to expound upon.
1: Oh, we'd love to. We'd love to participate. We, again, we really appreciate all you've done for ophthalmology. And, and uh, thank you for taking time to be with me.
0: Now that we've heard from a successful mentor, let's move on to Josh to hear more about residency today. Well, this is uh, Dr. Gary Wirtz once again, and now I have a chance to interview someone who's become a friend over the past year or so, uh, Dr. Josh Frankel. And uh, Josh is a uh, senior resident at Tulane and has been going through the the whole medical education process and is really getting ready to uh, reach the end of the residency journey and and actually looking for fellowships right now. And so I thought it would be a good idea to bring Josh on to remind us of the struggle of being a resident and giving us sort of a real-time update for those of us who have been removed from residency for a while, just how hard it is right now uh, in this day and age uh, to be a resident. So I thought it'd be a a good update uh, and really to get a encapsulation of what it's like a day in the life of a resident uh, in in 2017. So Josh, thanks so much for taking a little bit of time um, and coming in and talking to me today. I really think this is going to be an important segment.
2: Well, Gary, thanks so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. I'm actually a huge fan of the pod. Oh, that, thank Avid you, listener. Avid thank listener. you.
0: Thank you. Well, there you go. I'm glad. I'm really happy that you were, were able to work this out. So, give us a little bit of a background. I know that you grew up in Madison. Uh, you went to Oberlin in Ohio, great school, and then you migrated further south, uh, all the way down to Tulane, and, and you've been at Tulane Med School and residency. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yeah. Oh, okay.
0: And so, when did you? When in your journey did you decide ophthalmology was going to be uh, your specialty?
2: Well, you know, Gary, so I went into medical school. Um, I didn't have a specific field in mind. I really became interested in ophthalmology about third year, early on in third year. I met a gentleman, uh, Blake Williamson. Uh, Blake, yes. Um, The the
0: man, the myth, the legend. Absolutely.
2: And uh, Blake was an intern. I was a third year. And Blake told me, Josh, you have to check out ophthalmology. He said, it's an incredible field. And fortunately, I listened, and I, I did a rotation, and I was instantly hooked.
0: That's that's that kind of mirrors my experience. Unfortunately, I, uh, Blake was not around for me. Uh, that would be a lot more fun. But yeah. you know, as a third year, I was uh, ran right for my OB rotation. I was questioning my decision to go into medicine in general, and uh, got to see cataract surgery for the first time. And I I said, I can do this. I think I could do this every day the rest of my life. And I was actually right about that. I really, I still love it. I've been doing it for, you know, eight, nine years now. But uh, so third year med student, you said, all right, I'm going on this Mm -hmm. journey. At that moment, if you can remember, what was your impression of what it was going to be like to be an ophthalmology resident? Was it just like rainbows and unicorns?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was I think they called it the road. You know, there's radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesia. The road to success. Dermatology. All the, you know, just get in. And once you get in, you're great. You're done. Right. Right. (laughs) right,
0: Exactly. It's not that easy, though, is it? No. It's not that easy. Apparently not. (laughs) Yeah. So give us a little bit of an encapsulation of what your journey has been like. Tulane's a fantastic program, Mm -hmm. so we know you've gotten good training. Yes. Um, But with good training, uh, that means you're going to be stressed a little bit. You're going to be stretched and probably stretched in ways that you didn't even anticipate. So walk me through what your journey's been like at Tulane.
2: You know, so I I did an intern year there as well, and tremendous experience. Um, when I got to ophthalmology, it was almost like it was like being an intern all over again. Except this time, I had I didn't even have a medicine knowledge to fall back on.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, one of my residents, upper Lawrence, told me on my first day. They said, you know, you're going to be humbled this year because you went from being able to save people's lives in a code to not being able to run a refractor and actually get you know prescribe people a pair of glasses and it's going to be incredibly humbling for you and it was did you find that same i mean it's kind of what you're describing it seems
2: yes 100% it was the most humbling year of my life i would say it it felt like i'd been thrown into a pool just like the deep end and i was just trying to find a you know trying to get onto the ledge trying to find my way and catch my breath because not only you have the responsibilities of call and you're trying to learn your field, you learn your craft, you want to be maintain your responsibilities at home. Right. You know, I'm a husband, I, I have a, a wonderful wife, and I want to try to maintain those responsibilities while being the best resident I can.
0: Right. And I think the, the struggle for me was really, I think my expectations were upside down because I had the same thing. I was like, man, as soon as I get into residency, all my wildest dreams are gonna come true. And and really you kind of get no respect from everyone else. They really love to throw shade at ophthalmology. They're jealous, it's fine, we get it, we know. But there's really unless you're an ophthalmology resident, unless you've been through that first year, you don't really know what it's what it's like to go back to square one after your intern year.
2: Yes. The struggle was very real.
0: <laughs> So uh, first year, I, I know um, was probably uh, difficult, just like like anyone like everywhere. Uh, what a you know t- walk me through you know kind of the progression through your training and how that works at Tulane. Mm-hmm. So
2: Tulane, you know, we're very fortunate to have a lot of surgical experience, and part of that is we we travel to we go to three different VA hospitals, two of which are outside of New Orleans. So I'm spending about two two and a half month blocks away from New Orleans my first year
0: and that's not like 20 minutes away from New Orleans mm-hmm. right this no. is
2: like an hour to two mm-hmm. three yeah one one of them's in Mississippi it's about an hour and a half the other is in Alexandria Louisiana so it's about almost four hours away
0: so that does that does uh, bring into the whole work-life balance um, situation I think if you're single maybe it's easier although I think we sometimes you know we write off the experience of folks who are single and if you're married, you sort of think your your life is is harder automatically, but there is something to leaving home when someone's waiting for you. um I've felt that stress myself, and um you know how how is that how do you maintain that work life balance
2: it's you know it's been a real challenge it's something that I try to be aware of, and again it's it's another humbling experience because we're used to being smart we 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 want to be good at our craft we want to be the experts at things. And you realize there's some things that you don't know how to do and you're trying to figure out how do i balance my career and becoming what i've always dreamed of what i want to be with the person i am every day and the person who i've committed to or you know who i've chosen to spend my life with and how do i find that out on the fly
0: right right you're making real-time decisions where you are you have a certain amount of resources, and you're trying to figure out how do you give 100% of those resources to both things that you love. And yes. it's just an impossible, it's an impossible situation. So it's, it's it takes a lot of, I mean, I've, I've met your wife, and she's fantastic. Uh, and, uh, you know, my wife was extremely understanding that this was a season, and that there was going to be no real sense of balance during the season. Um, you know, if there was any balance, it was just that we were spinning together. And the thing that kept us afloat was our centripetal force. It just (laughs) kept us like a gyroscope from falling over because we were spinning together. Um, So I I totally get that, and I understand that tension. Tell me about, and this is maybe an unfair question, so you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but what was it like your first time uh, or, you know, maybe first few times doing cataract surgery? That's one of those sentinel moments for me. I'll never forget it. What was it like, man? I mean, it was
2: incredible, you know. It's. I remember, like you said, when first time watching cataract surgery, I was like, "Wow, this is amazing." I, that's and it looks so easy, to. right? Yeah. Oh, it looks so easy, right? <laughs> it's so underappreciated no. by the novice. And and then you get in the first time you're in the eye, and you're like, "Whoa, my hands are moving different." This is not. It's like efficient looking through water almost. Right. It's totally foreign, and your movements. Are not are amplified. Yes, yes, <laughs> so much so. And it was, I mean, talk about a humbling experience.
0: Right. Another one. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. Every every new experience in ophthalmology is, I think, just like starting back from square one and realizing you know nothing. Yes. Um, and that that's kind of hard on the ego, especially for people who've been pretty driven and and motivated to outperform others. Um, it is really hard to recalibrate yourself at every new rotation that, okay, I'm starting again from scratch mm-hmm. and um, just have to come to work with your hard hat on, yes. you know, and not worry about it. Um, so I know you, right now you have decided to pursue a fellowship and you're doing uh, anterior segment. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did you decide you wanted to, um, first of all, subspecialize uh, in, in some, some sort of anterior segment specialty And uh, walk me through kind of that decision process.
2: So Gary, I I felt initially, even when I matched in ophthalmology, I just in my mind I felt like I probably wanted to do a fellowship because I wanted to be the most, um, a really, a good candidate, find a good job, and I've I've been differentiate
0: yourself exactly. Yeah,
2: and you know I've been fortunate that I've been exposed to some tremendous people in the field, and I've gotten really excited about things like refractive surgery, refractive cataract surgery. All the new, incredible, you know, MIG stuff going on, and so I, it was relatively easy for me to say that's what I want to do, and so that's I've kind of just set my sights on that and trying to find a good match for fellowship for me.
0: That's awesome. What what have you learned throughout the uh, fellowship match process? That is something I did not go through formally. I went through. I did a a clinical fellowship outside the match, so it was more of a, you know, mentor uh, fellowship. What have you learned on the on the interview trail uh, maybe that surprised you or that was unexpected?
2: Well, um, one thing you see is there's a lot of really smart people out there, <laughs> a, a right. lot of really excellent candidates, um, and that everybody, all these people at the top of their field do things a little bit differently. There's, there's some things that they all share, some similarities, but you can be successful doing things your own personal way, and you don't have to be a cookie cutter. You can do your own thing and be yourself and still be incredibly successful.
0: Well, Josh, I just want to thank you so much for uh, giving us a little bit of a glimpse. It is uh, a refresher and a reminder for for me uh, of those tough times. You know, um, I will tell you, it gets better. Uh, hang in there. <laughs> uh, you're going to be a superstar. You're going to be great. Uh, I wish you nothing but the, the best of luck in matching in a fellowship. Um, you've got a lot of guys and and girls who are uh, who are looking uh, forward to seeing you succeed and um, if there's anything we can do for you man we want to be there not just for you but honestly uh, hopefully this podcast in some way um, can be an impetus for mentorship because I really deeply believe that no one makes it on their own we don't we're not self-made every single one of us had somebody, um, Take a, take a shot, take a chance on us. And um, I know that's happened time and time again in my life. And so um, actually through the Cedars-Aspens group, uh, we're actually trying to start a, a more formalized mentorship program So uh, anyone out there listening who is maybe in their uh, latter years of residency, fellowship, or maybe in the first couple years of practice, stay tuned. There's going to be more uh, to talk about with the mentorship program because we really deeply care about making this profession just a little bit better than we found it because that happened to us. So it's time to pass the baton. And Gary,
2: you know, I wanted to thank you so much for having me and echo what you're saying. I mean, you you guys and women in the field have made me feel really welcome, and it's it's very humbling to have such people at the top of their field be so warm and open, and guys like yourself and John Solomon, Greg Parkhurst, all these guys and lovely women, wonderful, smart women, who've been so good and so accepting to someone, a resident, you know,
0: well, we, we are lucky to be surrounded by not only smart and talented people, but incredibly kind people. And that's a culture that we want to continue to foster. So with that being said, Josh, thank you so much. And uh, we want to check in on you and as we follow your career. Okay? I would love that. Thanks awesome. so much for having me, Gary. We can probably all remember how humbling those early days of training were and how uncertain the future felt at times. Let's make a goal to take a page out of Dr. Oding's book and help our mentees become captains of their own ships. Encouraging those in training to embrace their individuality will help them remain passionate and motivated as they forge ahead. From this, the entire field benefits. With that, thanks so much to Dr. Oding and Dr. Frankel for their time today, and thank you all for listening. If there's a topic you all want to hear more about, please be sure to leave a review with your suggestions. See you next time on Off The Grid.
1: Ophthalmology Off The Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.